Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. We're fascinated by true crime. Psychologists say it's normal. We're drawn to good versus evil. True crime gives us a glimpse into the minds of people who commit taboos against society. We want to know who did it and why. We look for the red flags, hoping we might ward off future danger. But mostly, we're hardwired for the story. It's the equivalent of gathering around a campfire. And if you hear one well-told story, you'll want another. Of all crime stories, we are most obsessed with murder. From serial killers to unsolved homicides, we want those tales. We want to be scared from the safety of our own homes, or cars, or earbuds. We tell ourselves it can't happen to us, or that we saw it coming all along. But the cases where life seemed safe and normal? Those terrify us the most. Take New Orleans at the end of World War I, for example. In late 1918, Americans felt at peace again. Optimism for the future soared. In celebration, a new type of upbeat music swept the nation, jazz. At the heart of the jazz age was New Orleans, where a combination of swing and blues with a big band sound kept people dancing at nightclubs throughout the French Quarter. The city was growing, and people found New Orleans a welcome place to earn a living. In less than a decade, there had been the addition of an amusement park, libraries, a zoo, and several large businesses. The now world-famous Arnaud's restaurant opened, Life was good. On May 23rd of 1918, Jake and Andrew Maggio went to their brother's home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia like they did every morning. They let themselves in and called to their brother, Joseph, and his wife, Catherine. When the couple didn't answer, they searched the home and stumbled across a gruesome discovery. Joseph and Catherine lay in their bed. Someone had slashed their throats with a straight razor, then struck their heads with an axe. Catherine's throat had been cut so deep that her head had practically been severed. Joseph clung to life, but died before his brothers could summon help. Police searched the home, finding a pile of bloody clothes. The killer had cleaned up and changed into Joseph's clothing while the couple bled out. Jewelry and money sat in plain sight. There had been no sign of struggle or vandalism. The killer had had a single focus. By August, four more people had been killed and others left for dead. All had been attacked by a man with an axe. And all the victims were Italian immigrants. Dubbed the Axe Man, the killer terrorized the city. Men in the Italian community began trading shifts, taking up watch from their porches to protect their families. In 1919, he crossed the river and struck again, this time in the town of Gretna. He badly injured a husband and wife before taking the axe to their two-year-old daughter. 
Police in Gretna initially believed neighbors were to blame. They ran a competing grocery business. Detectives visited the couple in the hospital often, asking if the two men who lived next door were the ones who attacked them. After the wife, Rosie, left the hospital, police arrested her as a material witness. They refused to let her go until she signed an affidavit naming her neighbors as the killers. After a brief trial, the men were convicted. One faced a life sentence, and the other was set to hang. Rosie walked into the local newspaper office and signed another affidavit, stating she had been coerced into her confession. The police threatened her with perjury, but she didn't back down. Her neighbors were released in December. On March 14, 1919, the Times-Picayune received an open letter from the Axeman to the people of New Orleans. He promised to leave the city the following Tuesday at 12.15 a.m. if the citizens would play jazz at that time. On March 19th, at a quarter past midnight, the sound of jazz filled homes and dance clubs. And, just like that, the Axeman of New Orleans vanished. The police believed the crimes were racially motivated. Prejudice towards those with Italian heritage was common. Police chalked up the killings as a vendetta over perceived American jobs lost to Italian immigrants. Other detectives suggested that the attacks had been mafia-related, though no evidence supported that theory. It wasn't the first time the Italian community had been accused of inciting violence in New Orleans. All that stood between life and death for Italian-American citizens in the Axemen killings was time and, apparently, jazz. In the late 1880s, though, that line was held by an Irish cop with a talent for solving crimes and for making enemies. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Depending on which side of the law they were on, the people of New Orleans either loved or hated David Hennessy Jr. What was agreed on, though, is that he made a name for himself in law enforcement right from the start. By all accounts, he got his tenacity from his father, David Sr., who returned from the Civil War and joined the New Orleans Metropolitan Police. It was the only place that would hire him, considering his mix of Union support and Irish heritage, complete with some stereotypical heavy drinking. But the police force there had supported the Union's efforts during the war, which meant the local citizens who had prospered from slavery weren't supportive of their police department. Like many on the force, David Hennessy Sr. was a big man, and he spent plenty of time with his fellow officers at the local bars, drinking and occasionally getting into fights. One night in 1866, one such fight got out of hand. A man identified only as Gruber hurled racial insults, especially toward the Irish-American officers. During the ensuing fight, Gruber was stabbed fatally. And in the aftermath, every officer in the bar was arrested. The case went to trial, and a few of the officers were released when the prosecution couldn't provide solid evidence that they'd been the ones who'd stabbed Gruber. David Sr. was among them. Some people didn't believe he was innocent, though. On Christmas Eve of 1868, Hennessy smelled smoke in his house. An arsonist had set the home on fire, hoping to catch the family asleep. They all got out just in time. Three months later, Hennessy sat with one Mr. Guéron, a former cop turned underworld hitman at a bar near the courthouse. 
Giron had been arrested for his crimes, but had walked free every time. As the two men drank, they began to argue. Giron suggested they pause the discussion long enough to order another round of drinks. Hennessy rose to get them, and that's when Giron drew a gun and shot three rounds into his chest. Giron claimed it was self-defense. He was arrested, of course. Just two weeks later, though, he walked free. The court had decided that Hennessy's reputation was all the proof they needed to buy the self-defense plea. One of Hennessy's fellow officers gave the eulogy at his funeral. He said David had been an honorable cop and pointed out all the good he'd done for the city. But those kind words were small consolation for his widow and young son, David Jr. There were no pensions set aside for officers slain outside of the line of duty. Margaret and David Jr. had nowhere to go except the poorhouse. Two years later, in 1870, Hennessy's former boss hired 12-year-old David Jr. as a messenger for the Metropolitan Police. Despite his young age, he proved to be a reliable and diligent worker, like father, like son. As a teen, he confronted two adult thieves in the act. Unarmed, he not only subdued them both, but hauled them to the police department single-handedly. The superintendent immediately hired Hennessy as the youngest cop on the force. In two years, David Hennessy Jr. became a detective. The superintendent was so taken by his work ethic and polite manner that when he retired in 1878, he fired everyone on his team except for the young detective. That left a lot of department openings and angry former cops. Hennessy's cousin Mike joined the force, and the two frequently teamed up to solve the city's toughest cases. Then, in 1881, an Italian diplomat presented Chief of Police Thomas Boylan with a photograph. In it, he pointed to a middle-aged man with dark hair, eyes, and mustache. The Italian government wanted to find him with the utmost discretion. The man, Giuseppe Esposito, had kidnapped an English clergyman who had been traveling in Italy. Esposito had committed the crime in broad daylight. He'd forced Reverend Rose to write his own ransom note, demanding a thousand pounds for his safe return. And Esposito had included an incentive with the letter, one of the Reverend's ears. When the Rose family couldn't come up with the money, they received the other ear. The British government didn't take the crime lightly. They sent military troops to rescue Reverend Rose and capture Esposito. The mission was successful, and the case was awaiting trial when Esposito escaped. He'd been tracked as far as New Orleans. But the Metropolitan Police and the Italian and British governments weren't the only ones interested in finding Esposito. A hotshot New York detective by the name of James Mooney was also looking for the escaped convict. Believing the Italian government already had Esposito in custody, he barged into the Italian consulate, demanding that they hand him over. Chief Boylan handed the complicated case to the department's star detective. Hennessy was determined Esposito wouldn't escape justice, but he had to find him quick. Mooney's arrest paperwork hadn't been properly filed, and if the New York detective captured him first, the Italian kidnapper would walk free on a technicality. It would make a better story if the manhunt had been drawn out, dramatic. But Hennessy and his cousin made it look easy. They nabbed Esposito in the middle of the night. That's not to say their prisoner went willingly, though. He fought the entire way to the awaiting police carriage. He was transported to a ship and taken back to Italy for his crimes. Overnight, David Hennessy Jr. became a local hero. 
But that faded just as quickly when a dark scandal within the Force suddenly came into focus. A rift developed between the Chief of Police and the new Chief of Detectives that year. Thomas Devereaux had no experience, had been appointed politically. The power struggle between the two men quickly made headlines, with each side accusing the other of corruption, favoritism, and deteriorating the force. Hennessy Jr. and his cousin Mike didn't like Devereaux, and the feeling was mutual. The new chief charged Mike with insubordination after a couple arguments. The police board reviewed the incidents and censored Devereaux. The chief's career began to tank and he was determined to take the Hennessy cousins down with him. He had Mike charged with drunken assault at a brothel on Basin Street. He claimed Mike had pointed his gun at a man and used language unbecoming of an officer. Then he charged David with abandoning his post. Serious accusations, but neither solidly based in fact. Mike presented a letter to the police board of commissioners from the brothel's madame, saying he'd been well-behaved. When the board called for the victim and witnesses to step forward, none did. All the board had on Mike was visiting a brothel, which wasn't precisely legal, but the case was dropped. The board of commissioners also dropped the charges against Hennessy. He hadn't abandoned his post, had been sick, and had sent a messenger to the station informing his boss. The mayor suspended Devereaux. Then, on October 12th of 1881, the chief of detectives was fired. The next day, Devereaux was at a shop on the corner of Gravier and Charles Avenue when he spotted Mike standing on the sidewalk outside. Clerks dove for cover as a hail of bullets shattered the windows from the inside. Mike took a bullet to the face, breaking his teeth and jaw before lodging in his neck. As he lay bleeding on the sidewalk, Devereaux stepped outside and aimed once more. He never saw David running toward him, gun drawn. Moments later, the former chief was dead. By nightfall, Devereaux's friends were insisting Mike and David had staged an ambush. Mike survived the shooting and was resting comfortably at the hospital while his cousin slept in a jail cell. The case went to court in April of 1882. Witnesses for both sides presented their testimony, but in the end, the Hennessys were acquitted. Though they were free, their careers were over. Mike and his wife relocated to Texas. David found success working in private security. Corruption and turmoil within the city made sure there was plenty of work, and wealthy citizens paid handsomely. Chief Boylan quit the Metropolitan Force in 1882 and joined the private security business as well. In 1888, former Mayor Shakespeare was re-elected and asked David to come back to the police department, this time as the chief of police. The department had seen a decade of corruption, and David thought he might do some good by cleaning it up. Officers who were trustworthy and had the best interest of the city at heart, he supported in every way. He asked for safety gear and higher wages. His effort became the talk of the town. People described Hennessy as a handsome man, though quick to anger like his father, playing into their stereotype of the Irish. But unlike his dad, they admitted he never touched a drop of alcohol. By 1890, Hennessy had cleaned up a lot of the corruption inside the Metropolitan Police. However, criminal activity, especially committed against Italian immigrants, plagued him. Violence within the Italian community flourished as well. That year, a string of vendetta killings made headlines. 
In his attempt to stop the violence, Hennessy found himself in the middle of two families believed to be involved in the city's criminal underworld. The Matranga and Provenzano families were business rivals on the waterfront. One night, the two families ended up in a shootout with fatalities on both sides. While the case awaited trial, Hennessy investigated both families. He learned the Matrangas had ties to the Italian crime syndicates. The headlines weren't kind to either family, claiming that both sides were thugs and part of the mob. In turn, talk began around town that Hennessy was protecting criminals instead of fighting them. Once he testified on behalf of the Provenzano family, rumors flew that the police chief was siding with the mafia. On October 15th of 1890, the cold rain had been relentless. It was late, and a tired Hennessy headed home after a long police board meeting. He bid his friend Billy O'Connor goodnight on the corner of Rampart and Gerard. Then, with only the rain to keep him company, he made his way home a block over. Just as he passed his neighbor's house, the gunfire erupted, bullets striking the buildings, lodging in the plaster and wood. O'Connor heard the shots and ran back. When the gunfire stopped, neighbors hurried outside. Someone had shot David Hennessy Jr. O'Connor knelt next to him, and seeing the bullet wounds and the amount of blood, he knew time was short. Who did this to you, he asked. Some say Hennessy told O'Connor that the Italians did it. Other reports dispute that, saying he was too injured to possibly name his assailants. Either way, as the chief of police looking to eliminate crime both inside and outside of his department, he had plenty of enemies. Hennessy died shortly after arriving at the hospital. He'd accomplished a lot in his short career. He was just 32 years old. O'Connor's report that the Italians had killed him spread through the department like wildfire. Police rounded up every Italian-American they could find. Before long, the cells were crowded. They searched homes for weapons without warrants. After questioning, some of the arrested immigrants were released. The next morning, two paperboys arrived at the police station to turn in a sawed-off shotgun they'd found in the gutter near Basin and Julia Street. The police noticed it had been redesigned in a way that allowed the weapon to fold up. Most likely, the killer had hidden it under a coat. The police followed the boys back to the location where they had found the gun. A quick search turned up another shotgun. By noon, the whole town had heard about the murder. People showed up at the police station with information, regardless of whether they had witnessed the murder or not. Some tipsters claimed the Matrangas had killed Hennessy out of revenge. Others thought the Mafia had killed him in retaliation for putting away Esposito years ago. Whatever the motive behind the murder, most of the town agreed the Italians were to blame and demanded aggressive action against them. Hennessy's portrait sat on easels at the courthouse. Black crepe hung from the walls in courtrooms and at Central Station. The morbidly curious flocked to look at the blood-stained street and bullet-riddled buildings. Hennessy had lived with his ailing mother to better care for her, and the constant stream of people outside upset her. Undertakers brought his body to his mother's home, giving her the chance to view her son's body privately, without the prying eyes of the public. She'd lost her husband and now her son. Flowers and telegrams of sympathy poured in from across the country. Mrs. Hennessy opened her home to the public for viewing on October 17th. Starting at 6 a.m., people came by to pay their respects. 
At 10 a.m., police pallbearers carried the casket out to the waiting, horse-drawn hearse. The police escorted the hearse to City Hall, where Hennessy's body lay in state. While the city mourned, a man named Thomas Duffy arrived at the Orleans Parish Prison bullpen. He asked to speak with a man named Scaffity. When guards brought the prisoner out, Duffy drew a pistol and shot him. Duffy insisted that Scaffity, one of the men recently rounded up, had been Hennessy's assassin. He ranted that if he had a say, every Italian would be run out of town. Duffy was taken to jail, though he'd only serve a six-month sentence. That wasn't the only violence, though. Fights broke out. By the time the police had thanked Mrs. Hennessy for her son's service and taken her home, a hundred more Italian-Americans were arrested. No one looked further than the Italian community. On October 18th, Mayor Shakespeare stood at City Hall before a large crowd and railed against the Italians. He shouted that something had to be done about the problems that brought to New Orleans. The crowd cheered and echoed the mayor's sentiments. Nineteen more men were dragged into the station on suspicion that they were affiliated with the Matrangas and the Mafia, though no evidence supported the claims. Newspapers continued to carry the headlines that Hennessy's death had been a vendetta, painting the entire Italian community as violent. It was a powder keg for an anti-Italian riot. Making matters worse, some of the defendants received mysterious funding for their legal fees. An investigation soon revealed that Lionel Adams, a non-Italian lawyer, had fronted the money. But residents speculated that the money had come from the Italian community, who in turn had gotten it from the Mafia. The Italian prisoners remained in jail until February 16th of 1891. Slowly, some of the men were released for lack of evidence, leaving nine defendants. As the trial dragged on, so-called witnesses could hardly get their stories straight. The defense pointed out the chaos, but surely the jurors couldn't be beyond reasonable doubt. After two weeks, the jurors remained deadlocked, and the judge declared a mistrial. As the defendants were escorted out of the courtroom, shouts and jeers rippled through the crowd gathered outside. A few shouted that the mayor had been right. Something had to be done. And if the law couldn't or wouldn't do it, then they would. They called themselves the Committee of Fifty. From the lowest wage earner to prominent businessmen, the group handed out leaflets calling on every non-Italian resident to show up for a meeting the next day. A great miscarriage of justice had been done, and as concerned citizens, it was their duty to set things right. The next morning, speakers from the group fired up the crowd. It was all up to the citizens, they said. They needed to make the city safe again and carry out proper justice. They said the police force and judicial system were corrupt, that the mafia had gotten to them. 10,000 people marched towards the parish prison. Shopkeepers and business owners cheered as they passed, fueling the crowd's sense of righteousness. The Italian consuls' repeated pleas for assistance against the crowd were ignored. The prison sheriff made a few last-minute efforts to secure the prison, but nothing could stop the thousands of rioters. The angry crowd broke past the gates and forced their way inside. They overtook any guard in their path to the holding cells. Nine Italian men were shot on sight, one of them 42 times. Then they dragged the bodies outside, along with two other Italian men still alive. They hung them from lampposts along with the corpses from the nine other men. It was one of the worst lynchings in America. 
Oddly enough, the crowd had left two men who were considered ringleaders of the French Quarter Mafia alive and unharmed inside the prison, making some contemplate the real motives behind the lynching. The mayor never took responsibility for his suggestions that something had to be done with the Italians. Ethnic hatred spilled into other states, where more violence against Italians was reported. The following morning, newspapers praised the crowd for the lynchings. The people convinced themselves their actions had been justified. It hadn't been a vendetta, they told themselves. That was for the Mafia. What they had done was justice. Hennessy's killers wouldn't walk free. But they might have been wrong about that. It wasn't over quite yet. Although the public had applauded the crowd's decision to lynch the men, a grand jury convened to investigate on March 17th of 1891. To get to the root of the story, they also had to reopen Hennessy's murder case as well. Weeks went by as the city waited for the verdict. On May 5th, the jury announced that the crowd who'd stormed the prison had formed spontaneously and had not initially set out to harm anyone. Though they'd been swept up in the moment and 11 men were killed, it was more than understandable. It was praiseworthy. Further, they claimed that the Mafia had bribed members of the jury in the Hennessy trial who'd voted against conviction. No action would be taken against them because the court claimed the unnamed jurors feared retaliation. The Committee of Fifty released their own report, stating that they had acted on the mayor's speech that something be done. They also said he'd permitted them to investigate all Italians. In their report, they named several Italian families, stating they often gave substantial money to the criminal underground in New Orleans. They also claimed the Italian Consul Corte admitted to knowing a purely Italian criminal class operated in the city. Facts and evidence were vague. They strongly suggested that the city refused to accept Italian immigrants or anyone who even looked Sicilian. Their suggestion fueled the bias that anyone with an olive complexion and dark hair and eyes must be a criminal. By the late 1880s, other Americans became fascinated with what they perceived to be secret Italian societies where crime flourished. Even Harper's Weekly promoted ethnic hatred while reporting the Hennessy murder, stating the attack had been made by, quote, a murderous society, long formidable in Sicily, and transplanted to this country by Sicilian immigrants. Hennessy had been a first-generation American. He'd witnessed how the Irish had been blamed for crimes simply because of stereotypes. Although the Committee of Fifty believed the men they'd lynched that day were mafia assassins and therefore deserved to die, no evidence has ever been found that associated them with the mafia. With the evidence, or lack thereof, it's hard to say whether Hennessy's assassination was an inside job or not. Had racial divide been a smokescreen, or did the Mafia have him killed for capturing Esposito? It might have been any number of men he'd put away. Crooked cops, disgruntled officers, or even one of Devereaux's connected friends. And sadly, although Hennessy had a reputation for buttoning up the toughest of crimes, his own murder has yet to be solved. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., 
That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Locked Room Mysteries. They're the perfect, impossible crime. They've been a favorite of detective story fans for decades, so it's hard to believe that in the early 1900s, the genre had all but faded into obscurity. That is, until Joseph Elwell. On the morning of June 11th of 1920, the milkman dropped off the daily delivery at a large New York brownstone. The gates outside were closed and locked as he expected. At 8.30 a.m., Marie Larson, Elwell's maid, arrived for work. Pink women's lingerie lay strewn on the floor. After picking it up, she looked for her employer. She found the living room door locked from the inside, which was unusual, and she fished the key from her pocket. Upon entry, a cursory glance told her Elwell was at his desk, back toward her, in his tall, wingback chair. When he didn't respond to several greetings, she drew closer and discovered a toothless, balding man gasping for breath with a bullet wound in his head. In her shock, it took a moment before she realized the man was Elwell without his dentures and wig. Naturally, she called the police, but not before hiding the lingerie in the clothes hamper. Elwell was still alive when police showed up, but died shortly after arriving at the hospital. The police debated how he could have been shot at close range inside a locked room. Elwell's brownstone was a virtual fortress, according to those who knew him. No one gained entry unless they were expected. A pile of half-opened mail sat on his desk. No one except Elwell had been seen entering the home during the last hours of his life. Given the lack of dentures and hairpiece, detectives surmised he'd known his killer. So, who shot him? Well, there were plenty of suspects. Nearly a thousand, according to police reports. In the 19-teens, Elwell was living the American dream. He'd started life as an insurance salesman and found that charm worked wonders at making deals. It worked so well that he used his charisma to gain access to an elite men's club reserved for the sons of the rich upper class. The club revolved around bridge. 
The game had taken the country by storm, and the better players earned quite a bit of money. For 43-year-old Elwell, though, the club provided the perfect opportunity to make wealthy connections with business tycoons and politicians. Elwell was an exceptionally good player, and his ruthlessness at the table earned him the nickname the Bridge King of Manhattan. His prowess attracted the best of partners, Harold Sterling Vanderbilt, grandson of the railroad executive. He introduced Elwell to another socialite and bridge player, Helen Derby. Being the social climber he was, it didn't take Elwell long to find that Helen's connections would be beneficial. Her cousin, Richard Derby, was married to Franklin D. Roosevelt's daughter, Ethel. Not to mention, the young socialite came from money as well. Their courtship was quick, and before long, the two married. With his wealthy young wife and wins at the bridge table, Elwell left the insurance business and spent his time either socializing, playing bridge, or teaching affluent students how to play the game. Now part of the upper class, he purchased a second home in Palm Beach, Florida, along with 20 racehorses, five cars, and a yacht. Helen was simply a means to acquire wealth, and he immediately embarked on multiple affairs. He had so many that Derby left in 1916, taking their five-year-old son with her. Free of his wife and child, but still living off her money, Elwell took his womanizing to a new level. He engaged in numerous encounters with bridge students, cocktail waitresses, and the wives of very prominent business and political associates, as well as those of his fellow players. Married women seemed to be his favorite. Between gambling enemies, a host of angry husbands, and his demands in the divorce settlement, Elwell had become the most despised man in New York. He didn't care, though. He was determined to have a good time, even at the expense of those who'd helped him along the way. On June 10th of 1920, Elwell wined and dined Viola Krauss, who'd just recently divorced her wealthy husband. The couple enjoyed a lavish dinner and a night of dancing at the Ritz-Carlton. Afterward, they attended a Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic show in Times Square that ended around 1.30 a.m. Viola took a taxi home while Elwell said he preferred to walk. Times Square was a good two and a half miles from Elwell's brownstone on East 70th, though. He didn't head home. He made a stop, probably a planned one that he hadn't told Viola about, at a cafe on Broadway. Witnesses said he spent some time with two men and another woman. They said he left with the trio in a flashy roadster. Phone records show Viola called Elwell at 2.30 a.m. She later told police that he never answered. His neighbor said a noisy roadster pulled up outside the brownstone at 3.45, but only Elwell exited the vehicle. A search turned up the lingerie, and they questioned the maid. Then they questioned Viola, who admitted the lingerie was hers, and that she had been intimate with Elwell on multiple occasions in the past, but denied being with him the night of his murder. Her ex-husband had an airtight alibi. Elwell's estranged wife wasn't in town and was also removed as a suspect. Elwell kept photographs and lingerie from his conquests, all of whom were much younger than him. He also kept a list that included names, phone numbers, and explicit notes. Now detectives had a dizzying number of suspects and theories. Some speculated that he'd had a woman at his home before leaving her for his date, and the angry woman shot him upon his return. But it could have been any of the boyfriends, husbands, or jilted women. The case remained unsolved, and Elwell became more famous for his death than his life, 
reviving the appeal of locked room mysteries. If anything, we're as obsessed with unsolved murders as we are with solved cases. Because, in the end, it's terrifying to know a killer still walks among us. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.